Amen. Good morning. It's good to be with you all. Uh, I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving holiday with your family. Hopefully you didn't eat too much. Uh, I know mine was good. It was a great time with family. Great time of rest, for sure. And uh, thankful just to be with you this morning, to be gathered around the Lord Jesus Christ, to be gathered around his word, to hear from him, to hear what he has for us today. Uh, If you would, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to Joshua chapter 23 as we turn our attention to the text this morning. Joshua 23. In January 1933, a German pastor and theologian by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer made a radio broadcast criticizing Adolf Hitler and his movement. Hitler had just been elected as chancellor two days prior to this broadcast, and his election was widely accepted by the German population, including many parts of the church. As the political power continued to grow in Germany, Bonhoeffer continued to firmly oppose the persecution of Jews, and he argued that the church had a responsibility to stand against it. In April of 1943, Bonhoeffer was arrested for his active affiliation with groups that strongly opposed the Nazi party and sought to free Jews to Switzerland. Bonhoeffer was imprisoned at the Tegel military prison for a year and a half. After the famous failed bomb plot to assassinate Hitler on July 20th, 1944, Bonhoeffer was moved to the Gestapo's high security prison and he eventually ended up at the Flossenburg concentration camp. Bonhoeffer still continued to preach the gospel in the camp and remained devoutly committed to his God. A fellow inmate named Payne Best had this to say about him. Bonhoeffer was different, just quite calm and normal, seemingly perfectly at his ease. His soul really shone in the dark desperation of our prison. He was one of the very few men I have ever met to whom God was real and ever close to him. On April 8, 1945, Bonhoeffer was sentenced to death by hanging for his opposition and affiliations and was hung at dawn the following day. This just being two weeks prior, or excuse me, this was two weeks after that, the U.S. soldiers liberated the camp and a month before the total surrender of Nazi Germany. Bonhoeffer's life and legacy had an extraordinary impact in history and on the church. It heavily influenced the civil rights movement in the United States years later. And Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer, excuse me, he had many great writings and quotes, but one of his most famous went like this. The ultimate test of a moral society is the kind of world that it leaves to its children. I want us to consider that today. As Joshua is nearing the end of his life today in the text, the charge that he gives to Israel's leadership is very significant, and it has profound application for the church today. I believe so. So this is Joshua chapter 3 I'm reading from, starting in verse 1. This is the word of God. A long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes, those nations that remain. 
along with all the nations that I have already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight. And you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them, but you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. And now I'm about to go the way of all the earth, and you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. But just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you. If you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given to you. Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we come before you today so thankful for the opportunity to gather in your name, so thankful for your holy word that you have given us, Lord, how you've revealed yourself to us in the pages of Scripture made yourself known. We praise you for this reality today, God. Praise you for each and every soul that you have brought here. Lord, I pray that you would be with us as we study your word. I pray that you would bless the reading of your word and the careful study of it, that your spirit would move in our hearts, that you would set our eyes and our hearts upon you today, O God, that you would reign in our hearts, that your name would be hallowed here in this place, that your kingdom would come and your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this text today, it really, it's a sermon that Joshua is giving. It's a sermon Joshua is giving to the people of Israel, really as his life is coming to an end. And it says at the beginning, a long time afterwards. So we don't really know how long that would have been, but estimates are around a few years. It probably would have been a few years after the narrative in Joshua 22 with Phineas that we studied last week where the two and a half tribes seemingly went astray, but the people of Israel came together, they were restored, and they blessed God. And so he begins by calling them to remember all that the Lord God has done as they've entered into this new land. Remember what God has done. Remember where he has brought us. See verse 3. Says, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake, for it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. So he wants to bring to mind the faithfulness of God 
to the people of Israel. He wants them to know that and remember that. How he led them out of Egypt and brought them into this land and how he has crushed their enemies and delivered them into their hand. And Joshua tells them that they've seen this happen firsthand. So of course they've heard about it, right? They've heard about what happened in Egypt and with Pharaoh and the plagues and the Passover and the Red Sea. They've heard about those things. They've read about those things. But now they've seen it with their own eyes, right? The leadership of Israel, they've seen God in his faithful hand. They've seen him do things that only he could do. And Joshua wants them to be rallied around this truth, the the leadership of Israel, to know this for certain. Not one single word of what God has promised to Israel has failed to come to pass. Know for certain that the God of Israel, the true God, Yahweh, he's a promise-keeping God. He does what he says. He always does what he says. He keeps his promises faithfully. We see in verse 5, The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight. And you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God has promised you. So he tells them just as the Lord's been faithful, just as he's, if we've been victorious because of God, so he will continue to be. And we can trust that and be assured of that because of what we've seen and what we've done, what he has done. And he's rallying Israel around this troop this truth. He wants them to know it for sure. He wants to give them confidence in their God. Joshua then, he gives them a command, a very serious command in verse 6. It says, therefore be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left. Is this command that he gives and it should sound incredibly familiar to us because we've seen it before, especially since we've been studying Joshua Uh, for several months now. It's it's in fact the command that God gives to Joshua right at the beginning. When Joshua is summoned to lead Israel, to secede Moses, God gives him this command. Hear these words, consider this parallel in Joshua chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. It says, be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all that the law of Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. You see, God's law was his gracious gift to Israel, that they might serve him faithfully, that they might know him. It was a reflection of God's character, right? He commands us not to lie because he doesn't lie. He commands us not to commit adultery because he himself is faithful. And that law that he gives, it's a reflection of his character, And when it says the book of the law, it's referring to the Torah, which really was the word of God for the people of Israel in this time in redemptive history. They didn't have Bibles, but this really essentially was their Bible. It was the word of God for them in this time. And Joshua, he's given this command in the beginning. He leads the people faithfully, and he gives this command to the leadership of Israel. He tells them to heed this same command. He gives it to them pretty much verbatim. Don't turn to the right hand or to the left. Be very careful. Be strong and courageous. Be careful to do all that the law of Moses commands. He doesn't give them some new command or strategy. I think that's incredibly significant that he really gives them the same command here. His concern for them is that they may not even mix with these nations remaining among them. You see, God commands in his law, you shall have no other gods before me, right? We know that command. It's the first of the Ten Commandments. And we hear that and we kind of read over it really quickly. We don't really see the 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 strength of that language, how, how serious that command is. We don't consider that, right? It's, it's, it's not saying make Yahweh your God first. 
and then any other gods after that are fine. It's not a ranking system. Like God first and then everything else is fine. Really, the, the language in Hebrew, it reads, Yahweh's God alone, right? You shall have no other gods in my sight. That's his command to Israel. I'm God alone. I don't want you to even be associated with the false gods of these nations around you. And for them to be associated with them would have been a serious transgression of God's law. It would have been to break it. Joshua calls the leadership to cling to the true God. Don't even mix with these nations. Cling to your God who's been faithful to you, who has brought you to where you are today, and who's kept his promises faithfully. You see, because how could, how could they have come to where they are if it wasn't for God bringing them there? There is no way that they could have done what they've done if it wasn't God fighting for them. See verse 10. It says, One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. Israel has been outnumbered numerous times in their journey. They've been in numerous situations where the odds were against them. They should not have prevailed against their enemy. They should have lost. They should have been defeated. And yet they overcame their enemies and prevailed because their God was the true and living God, the almighty, all-powerful Lord of glory. You see, when these pagan nations, when they cried out to their false gods for help, when Israel came against them, they were crying out to no one. No one heard them because there was nobody there. And God destroyed them and delivered his people. And this is exactly what Moses actually says among the assembly of Israel, just as his life was coming to its end. It says this in Deuteronomy chapter 32. If they were wise, they would understand this. They would discern their latter end. How could one have chased a thousand and two have put 10,000 to flight unless their rock had sold them? And the Lord had given them up. For their rock is not as our rock. Our enemies are by themselves, for their vine comes from the vine of Sodom and from the field of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of poison. Their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of serpents and the cruel venom of asps. You see, God demonstrates himself to his people by doing only what he can do. He demonstrates that he is true and the only God, just as he says. And Joshua, he wants Israel's leadership to know this with certainty as his life is coming to its end. He wants them to be assured of this, to be confident in that, to know it as they go and lead. We see that Joshua, he gives a, a serious warning to the people of Israel here in this text as well. Beginning in verse 12, it says that. He says, if Israel turns from God's law, if you mix with these nations remaining among you, then God will surely forsake them and they will perish. You know, we read in Joshua 21 that they had, God had given them the land that they promised, but there was still a remnant of the nations remaining among them and they would need to be defeated. And God command, and Joshua, he gives them a very serious warning. If you turn from God, you turn from his law, you will surely perish. You see, he's calling the leaders to fear God. He's calling the leadership of Israel, fear God rightly, revere him, respect him, to take his commandments very seriously. These commandments, they're not just, they're not light suggestions for you. They're not mere suggestions. They aren't just ways for their lives to be enhanced. They're certainly not there just for when things go bad for them and they need help and they turn to God's law. God's law is to be revered and treasured by Israel and carefully obeyed. And it is for their good that they have it, right? Israel would be totally lost without God's law. 
Do you remember what Israel was doing when God was giving his law to Moses at Sinai? They were worshiping a golden calf, right? They couldn't even wait for Moses to come down off the mountain before they turned from God. They turned from his law and started worshiping a golden calf. They couldn't even wait. You see, God, out of his great love for his people, commitment to his own glory, he gives his law to sinful people, not to be mere suggestions, but to guide them and to rule them. It's important that we see that here in this text. We see the seriousness of this command. As Joshua, as he concludes this charge that he's giving to Israel, he reminds them again of God's promise-keeping, of his faithfulness in verse 14. It says, And now I'm about to go the way of all the earth, he tells them. And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. And then he then takes this, this certainty in God's promise keeping and he equates it with the certainty of their destruction if they turn from God's law. It's almost as if he's saying, now you know for certain in your hearts that God has brought us here. You know that he's kept his word in full. And not only have you, you know this in your hearts, you've heard about it from those before you. You've read about it and you've seen it. You've witnessed it with your own eyes. And now that you're certain of that, be equally as certain that you will perish if you turn from this law. If you turn aside and you mix with these nations, it will end badly for the people of Israel. You see, Joshua here in this text, he doesn't really have a whole lot of new things to say to them. All of this is, are things that God has told Israel, things that Moses has said to them. They've been constant commands. This passage, it shows many parallels to what God commands Joshua as he secedes Moses at the beginning. And Joshua, now he's communicating that to Israel's leadership to stay grounded. That's what he's saying ultimately, right? Stay grounded in God's law. Stay grounded in obedience to the law. Be very careful to do all that it says. And all of his commands that have led them to this time of rest for them. So what does it mean for us, right? What does this text mean? So what? What does this mean for us as new covenant believers? People who are living in 21st century America, believers here in this time, I think we should see that it's critical for you and I that we stay grounded in the truth of God's word. You know, we are incredibly blessed to live in the time that we do to have the full canon of God's word, the Bible, as we know it, and to be looking back on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that it bears witness to, our Savior, right, the one who's redeemed us. Does the word of God rule us today, church? I want us to consider that question. Does it influence all that we say and do and think? Do we regard the word of God to be just that, the word of God, to be from him, every word of it? Or do we consider it to be a strange thing? Do we not pay much attention to it? Because you see in in this text, Joshua and the people of Israel, they had a standard, right? And it was God's law. That was their, their standard. The commandment to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, it was a constant command for the people of Israel. And while they believed that it was true, they believed in God's law, they knew it, it was objectively true regardless of whether or not they believed in it. This was objective truth that God was giving to the people of Israel, so is, is the Bible our objective truth today? 
in the culture that we're living in as Christians? Is the Bible objectively true to us? Do we take it seriously like the Israelites were to take God's law seriously? You see, there's this idea of postmodernism that really haunts our culture today. You may have heard that term before, maybe not. Uh, People don't really use the term a lot, but you can see it really easily if you're just listening for it, if you understand what it is, right? It's, here's what it means. It's the idea that truth is, is subjective, right? What's true for me may not necessarily be true for you. So the Bible can be my truth. It can be true for me, but not necessarily for you or take anything really. And this kind of thinking, it can really easily slip into the church if we're not very careful. It is completely nonsense for us as Christians to think this way. Because whether you or I like it, whether we believe it or not, the triune God of the Bible objectively exists. His word is objectively true. Jesus Christ is objectively Lord, and you and I are objectively sinful, as well as all humanity. And we are all objectively condemned apart from him. As Christians, the word of God, it must instruct and guide every aspect of our lives, all of it, not just the spiritual parts, not just when we come into church and hear it, but the word of God should be our standard for everything. And in order for that to be the case, we must read it. We must know it deeply, morning and evening, searching it, knowing it, letting it rule our households, rule our hearts, carrying out our lives in a way that is submissive to the word of God, being obedient to what it commands of us, I want to share a quote with you, and it's a rather long quote, so I apologize, but it's Spurgeon, so it's great. Uh, Yeah. So this is Spurgeon. This is a sermon that he preached called The Bible. It says this, Our last point is, the treatment which the poor Bible receives in this world, it is accounted a strange thing. What does that mean, the Bible accounted a strange thing? In the first place, it means that it is very strange to some people because they never read it. I remember reading on one occasion the sacred story of David and Goliath, and there was a person present, positively grown up to years of maturity, who said to me, Dear me, what an interesting story. What book is that in? And I recollect a person once coming to me in private. I spoke to her about her soul. She told me how deeply she felt, how she had a desire to serve God, but she found another law in her members. I turned to a passage in Romans and read to her, the good that I would do not and the evil which I would not, that I do. She said, is that in the Bible? I did not know it. I did not blame her because she had no interest in the Bible till then. But I did not wonder that there could be found persons who knew nothing about such a passage. Ah, you know more about your ledgers than your Bible. You know more about your day books than what God has written. Many of you will read a novel from beginning to end, and what have you got? A mouthful of froth when you have done. But you cannot read the Bible. That solid, lasting, substantial, and satisfying food goes uneaten, locked up in the cupboard of neglect. You see, how gracious of God to give us his word. How gracious of God to reveal himself in such a way. I remember, I used to think as a kid, it's so weird that God wrote a book. 
and revealed himself that way? Why can't he just appear to me in my bedroom at night and say something to me, right? And maybe you've thought that way before. I don't know. It's kind of silly. But I always thought that was strange. But now that I've, I've actually read it and I've grown up to see it, it's, I really see that it's a grace of God that he revealed himself this way, that he stepped into history in this way and made himself known within Scripture. See, there were many human authors, but there is one divine author of this book, and it is God, every word of it. And how foolish of us to not spend our days reading it, thoroughly searching its pages, knowing it deeply, being very careful to do what it says to us. Far be it from us today, church, to represent ourselves to, pe- to be people of God, to be the people of God, but to not act like it. We must treasure and must be ruled by God's word. We must let the Bible instruct every area of our lives. We do really well, especially in America, especially in the 21st century and the culture that we're living, we do well to understand Jesus in my heart. And that's an incredible message, and we praise God for that message. But the Bible has a lot to say. What does that mean? Now that Jesus is in our hearts, what do we do? How do we go about marriage in a, in a God-glorifying biblical way? Do we know what it says about marriage? Do we know what it says about having children and parenting and raising them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord as it commands? Do we know what it says about men and women and how they're different? Do we know what it says about suffering? Do we know what it says about how we're to conduct ourselves in the workplace or in the classroom? How we're to work heartily for the Lord and work for his glory? We're to take math tests and sit behind desks and run cash registers to the glory of God, if you could believe that. Do we know what the Bible teaches about those things? Do we consider that? Do we consider all of our life to be something that needs to be in submission to the word of God? We need that now more than ever. We need to understand that. We need to be searching that. We as Christians, we must stand for truth in the face of a culture that will not have it, that doesn't want anything to do with it. And John, well actually, would you turn with me to John chapter 15 and let us look at it together. John chapter 15, starting in verse 18. Fifteen, starting in verse 18. It says this, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. You know, we live in a time when the culture around us really wants nothing to do with the truth of God's word. They have no ears to hear it. They don't want the standard of God's word. They don't want to hear anything about Jesus and the gospel. And you don't really need me to tell you this, right? You see this happening. You know, turn on the news if you can even bear it, and you will see this sort of thing happening. 
There's no standard. We're making up truth as we go. And you really see the folly of that. And what should be the church's response to this? How do we respond to a culture that is this way? Do we say nothing? Do we give up? Do we turn away from the culture? Do we give up and hide in the church? Or do we capitulate? Do we tell them what they want to hear? Do we, do we make the things that God's word says more palatable for the culture so that they will accept them? Do we water down the teaching of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, so that they'll accept it? Or do we stand firmly upon the objective truth of God's word? And I promise you that this is not easy. This is not an easy task. It's not popular to believe these things according to the world. It's not going to be. Jesus made that clear. If you stand for truth, they're going to hate you. And you, when you become a Christian, you cease being cool. Give it up. You know, it's done. Give that up and, and joyfully give that up. Give that up for the sake of the glory of God and the glory of his word being known and being honored and revered. The church desperately needs men and women who surrender their reputations to God and stand boldly for truth, who will put a cross on their back and not fear the opposition that they will surely face. And in order to do this, we must know it. We must know with certainty what God says in his word. We must be Bible readers, Bible studiers, knowledgeable Bible people who store it up in our hearts, as the psalmist writes, that we might not sin against him, not departing from the law. You know, as Joshua 1, as God commands in Joshua 1 to him at the very beginning, this book of the law, it shall not depart from your mouth. Meditate day and night on it and be very careful to obey it. Abandon all hope in what feels right to us. We must do that, as hard as that is. You see, God's word teaches in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, it says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? If our heart is our standard, we will forever be lost. If we let our hearts, our emotions, if we let them dictate truth for us, we will be deceived only deceived. We need the standard of God's word. We need to let that influence the decisions we make. And if our hearts, if they feel something that goes against what this says, I assure you this is the problem and not what God's word says. And we must consider the seriousness of Joshua's warning to Israel because it's a real warning and we need to hear that. You know, Romans chapter 11, Paul writes, Note then the kindness and severity of God. And if you keep reading, if you keep reading after this on into Judges, you're going to see it's not long after this as Joshua dies, Israel does turn. And it does end badly for them. Joshua gives them over to the people around them. He gives them up to destruction. They serve the Baals. They come under judgment from God. He gives them up to their enemies. And listen, of course you and I, Hear me on this. Of course we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I'm not preaching against that. That is absolutely true. If you're hearing me say that we're, we're saved by how much we read our Bibles or how much we know that, you're missing what I'm saying. But you've got to understand something. You've got to understand 
something that isn't spoken of a lot today. What marks a genuine believer in Jesus Christ is a devout, unwavering commitment to the Word of God, a deep desire to know it as it is, to live a life that brings glory to the God of the Bible, the only God, the true and living God, the one who has ransomed us from our sins, who has delivered us, who has transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved Son, as Paul writes in Colossians 1, who has reconciled us to himself, who's given us new hearts and made us new creations in Christ. It means that we, now, we live lives that are in submission to God's word. We take it very seriously. We're very careful to do as it says. And so now we're going to turn our attention to the Lord's Supper this morning as we begin to close. And as we do that, let us consider what he himself said. This is Matthew 24, verse 35. It says, it's Jesus speaking, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Let us consider his perfect life, death, and resurrection that his word bears witness to. That he came and lived a righteous life according to the law and all the ways that you and I have not. That he came and suffered and died in our place. That he rose on the third day and ascended to the right hand of God where he now sits in glory, placing all of his enemies under his feet as a footstool. Let us consider what he calls his people to. Faithful obedience to his word. To know his word and to proclaim it boldly. To be people who stand for the objective truth of the holy word of God. And to live lives that honor his holy name and bring him glory. Amen. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you so much for the gift of your holy word. Thank you for revealing yourself to us, God. Thank you for bringing us together to hear from it. Thank you for the blessing of all being able to have your word. That one day was not the case, but now it is, Lord, and that's by your grace. Give us boldness, Lord. Give us boldness to be people who stand for truth, who seek to honor your name, to make you known, to make the truth of your word known to be the church that you've called us to be, to be disciples of Christ that you've called us to be, Lord. Give us boldness and confidence. Give us the grace to do this. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your life, death, and resurrection that makes any of this possible. Even here gathering this morning, Lord, there, we couldn't even do this if it wasn't for what you have done and where you are today, making intercession for us. Be with us, O oh God. Raise us up as the men and women you've called us to be. Give us boldness and confidence in your word. We thank you for all that you are and all that you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen.